Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. February the 2nd marks World Wetlands Day and that can often lead to some brilliant discussions about the importance of wetlands and bogs around the world. Discussions about the importance of biodiversity, flood water management and carbon storage. But occasionally the archaeological heritage of bogs can sometimes be overlooked. The preservation conditions caused by the formation of bogs are simply astonishing and what might immediately spring to your mind are things like bog bodies for example or the famous wooden trackways like Corlea. I discussed some of these features with Dr Ben Geary and Cathy Moore, both experts in wetland archaeology. We look at the kind of information that bogs can tell us about past environments and we look at past human interaction with the bogs. And we also discuss the challenges to that important archaeological heritage. Challenges that have come in the past through industrial peat extraction and challenges that may be faced in the future through the process of rehabilitating the bogs or by planting wind farms on them. To be honest, this is a discussion that's perhaps a little bit more political in some ways than some of the other episodes of Amplify Archaeology, but I think it's an important discussion and one that we should reflect on at this particular point when the role and use of wetlands in our environment is changing from one of Holesdale extraction to one looking more towards biodiversity and things. That still poses some challenges as we'll find out in this discussion. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, I'm here today with Cathy Moore, a wetland archaeologist and wooden find specialist with ABH Limited, and with Dr. Ben Geary, who lectures in environmental archaeology at University College Cork. You're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Thanks a million for joining me today, Cathy and Ben. Thank you. Um, so for listeners in the drier corners of the world, so long way outside of Ireland, uh, would you mind just kind of taking a moment to describe what an Irish wetland is, um, the different types and, and, and things like that? Ben, we might go to you first. On that. Sure, yeah. So as, as, as you say, anyone in Ireland will be aware, um, peatlands are in particular a, a, a dominant part of the Irish landscape. And depending on what figures you use, probably up to maybe about 20% of the total land area of Ireland is, is, is bog of one form um, or another. Um, that obviously geographically tends to be kind of focused in certain parts of the country. So obviously the, the Midlands, if we talk about the Midland raised bog areas. Um, and again, generally we split peatlands. There's many different ecological definitions um, that we don't need to worry about, but broadly we'll split peatlands into the raised bogs I've just mentioned mainly of the Midlands and mainly of the Lowlands and the blanket bog areas that are mainly of the Uplands and mainly in the West. So uh, again, I mean, these systems are, um, are the, the definition is partly based on landscape context. So Upland versus Lowland. And um, there's some differences in, in the formation processes or how these bogs start growing that I don't think we need to worry kind of too much about. Um, I suppose the key point from um, the point of view of our discussions today is, I suppose, just defining what peat is because a lot of the time I find people go, peat, it's obvious what it is. Well, is it, you know, I always ask the students here. I mean, peat is just, is, is incompletely um, decayed plant remains. And why does that happen? It happens in environments that are cold and damp, um, and in particular kind of topographic context in the landscape. So plants grow, and when they die, because the environment is cold and waterlogged, oxygen is excluded, and you get that formation and accumulation of peat. And obviously, if um, you leave that clock running long enough, you can get literally meters and meters of peat accumulating. It's essentially just it's just that it's organic organic matter preserved in those waterlogged conditions where where oxygen is excluded. Which, as we'll see shortly, is extremely important in terms of well a number of processes, not just related to um, I suppose biodiversity, but also important for carbon sequestration because peat is just carbon. And as we're going to talk about today, of course, um, archaeological preservation as well. That's very interesting. And Cathy, I mean, is it just down to that kind of preservation things that they're important archaeologically? I suppose it is really because it it's entirely different sort of environment to well to the rest to rest of the land, you know. 
and the preservation in bogs is completely different to what you get on dryland. So most people are kind of familiar with kind of dryland archaeology sites and they've got things like stone walls and they've got ditches and they've got banks. But in bogs, what you've got is preservation in, of organics. And I suppose in particular, in the main part, it's wooden structures that are preserved in peatlands where on the dry land, you have the spaces where the wood used to be. So everyone knows about post holes and pits and, and all that kind of thing. Whereas it, when you're in the peatlands or in any sort of good, wet environment, you have the posts and you have the structures. So you have the 3D archaeology. You don't need to imagine what was there because it's right there in front of you. But I suppose as well as the wood, then you get other organics preserved in bogs. So leather and of course, the one that everyone knows is bog bodies. So where you have human remains where the skin and their hair are still preserved which is really quite incredible. Absolutely and uh, talking about some of those kind of other types of material there's I suppose smaller things as well that can tell you an awful lot about past environments isn't that the case Ben? Yeah sure of course so that's that's what we sometimes refer to as the the paleo environmental or the paleo ecological record which is as you say is the preservation of i mean pollen would be the obvious one um so obviously pollen from plants growing in the bog and around the bog preserved in the layers of peat as they accumulate through time so that's obviously the important thing with peat bogs at least before they're disturbed they're steadily accumulating so maybe perhaps a centimeter every 20 years again the variation that accumulation rate varies a little bit but again yeah we have so we have peat of course which is the plant remains so that forms part of the record. We have pollen grains. We have all sorts of other microscopic material that ends up in the box. So that's the importance of box as an archive, which is a word you use here a lot, an archive of past landscapes. So it's that sense not only of the archaeological record, but of that context of environmental change. And those records are extremely important for how we understand changes in the landscape over, over thousands of years. And not just that climate change as well. So bogs are often raised bogs in particular or bogs that are literally raised and so that uh, moisture supplies from the atmosphere and um, we sometimes refer to those kind of bogs as having climate memory because changes atmospherically can be reflected in the peat so an important source of uh, information on climate change over the, the last you know several thousand years yeah it's fascinating and uh, i suppose when it comes to human activity in the bog kathy what sort of like i mean the they're quite dangerous landscapes in a lot of cases, you know, an untouched bog, they could be a little bit treacherous. What sorts of activities were humans carrying out? I know like we're talking about everything going back to the Mesolithic kind of right up, but in generally speaking, what type of archeological monuments could you expect to find or hope to find perhaps in a, in a bog? Uh, the, the most common sites in the bogs are trackways. So they are paths and roads built to conquer that landscape or to manage it or to, I suppose, to gain access into it and across it. And there are sites in the thousands in the bogs um, and the trackways would range from kind of little short paths, like a, you know, two meters just getting you across a particularly wet patch or to huge, big kind of monumental roads that are going across maybe a couple of kilometers. There've been a couple of them identified in Midland bogs as well. But there's also lots and lots of really, really small sites out there, like just little scatters of worked wood. They're actually the most common site type that we find out there. And they're really quite poorly understood. I mean, it's like somebody just, you know, cut 10, 20 branches off a small tree or bush and just threw them down on the ground. And they occur in their thousands. And they kind of show, they would like to de demonstrate that there were people out there a lot of doing what we don't really know, I suppose, you know, they're not building a trackway to get across a particular area. They're not really, we don't understand those sites, but they're out there in their thousands and they indicate that people were really out in the bogs quite a lot, you know, much, much more than we think about bogs now. They're very marginal. They're very, um, they're not somewhere, you know, apart from pe when people are working in them, they're not somewhere people are going, but in the past people were out there a lot. They really, it was very much a utilized part of the landscape, I think. And they often, I suppose, and to some extent, they still do. I'm thinking of some of the big um, bogs in the north of County Tipperary and stuff like that. They often kind of marked, they often became boundaries, didn't they? Because they were so uh, difficult to get across in some way. Um, did that kind of have a relation yeah. with the behaviour? Bogs, yeah, they do form boundaries in the landscape. Like they are, as you say, treacherous and physically difficult places to manage. But people have made a lot of attempts in the past, I think you'd agree, Ben, would you, to, to, to manage those landscapes and to, to gain access into them. 
But I suppose one thing that we learned in, in the last decade or certainly become very clear or maybe the last 20 years of, of kind of looking at bogs is that people built a lot of trackways to get themselves out there. You know, to, to gain access out into the bogs as opposed to just crossing them or getting through them. So getting out there was a, was a focus a lot. So like I say, you know, yes, they were boundaries and they are kind of marginal different spaces. But at the same time in the past, people um, people made a lot of effort to, to get out there as opposed to get out there a bit safely and on a trackway. And do you think that's related to, say, um, I, I don't know, it, it's incredibly difficult. It's such a blanket kind of um question to ask but do you think that's related to more practical issues like maybe they were going out there hunting different types of birds or things like that or or trying to even extract fuel you know turf or do you think there was a certain degree of you know they're often referred to as a liminal space aren't they they're not the and some cultures you know in scandinavia and in, in, in particular um you would find that there would be, or, or even with Bronze Age here, you would find that there would be things like hordes deposited in bogs. How much do you think uh, these trackways that kind of don't cross the bog, if you like, they lead out into it, where do you think the balance generally lies with those? Where, if you were to guess in, on, on an average kind of way? I think if, if I might just pick up that one, I think what, what, what Saf, Kathy says is correct. And mm. I think more broadly, there's a sometimes a perception in, I suppose, bits of the archaeological community that, that bogs are in the past being viewed as obstacles that people are just trying to get across very quickly. And that's that's not really borne out by the, by the record at all. And I think in answer to your question of what are people doing, I think the answer to that is all sorts of things from, from what we can establish. As Cathy said, with some of these sites, it's it's slightly unclear exactly what, but we can run the whole kind of range of, of reasons to go into a bog from, as you say, from resources. And there'd be various resources in bogs that we wouldn't maybe immediately think of as useful in the present day um, through, I suppose, starting with things like, you know, reeds and rushes. We know from some of the work that's done at, at sites of uh, the Sheen in County Tipperary, some very detailed work there where we have trackway structures in the, in the Iron Age that certainly accessing the, the edge of the bog where you have uh, rushes growing um, and other plants like that. And the suggestion there is those that resources are being harvested. Um, same in the high bog, you know, sphagnum, for example, that we tend to think of it as a fertilizer or that something goes into, you know, bags of compost. But as people might be aware, you know, sphagnum has various uh, properties. It's, it's a septic, you know, it can be used as a wound dressing second in the, in the First World War, a huge amount of sphagnum was harvested for that. So I think we can anticipate in the past that kind of use of bogs, as well as, as what you alluded to, I suppose, what we call the more, you know, kind of votive or ritual aspects of bogs. And I think a big question, I don't know what Cathy would say, is we don't understand why some bogs are used in a way that we might describe as quotidian, kind of every day. And other bogs seem to end up as more special in inverted commas, um, you know, for deposition of valuable metalwork or even human bodies. Um, or even whether that division is, is valid, we don't know. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that all sorts of things are happening in bogs. They're not just places that people in the past are trying to get across and out of as quickly as possible. Okay, interesting. And I suppose we, we, you know, we can't talk about wetlands and bogs without talking about bog bodies. And uh, Cathy, am I right in saying that you're pretty much the only archaeologist that normally when somebody finds a bog body, it's because like a, a peat harvesting machine or something like that has caused damage and it's been noticed in, in the process of harvesting peat. Are you the only archaeologist that actually found one initially, if you know what I mean, like that it wasn't found accidentally and an archaeologist called in? Would that be the case? Yeah, I think I am. I think that's my claim to fame that uh, I found the Tumbebog body. So that was in 1998. So I was only, I was about this, my second summer out or maybe my third summer out as an, working as an archaeologist, working with the Irish Archaeological Wetland Unit. So we were surveying in the Lamanahan area in County Offaly, which is a, big expanse of bog. There's an incredible landscape actually and there's an island, a Lamanahan island with an early church on it and there's trackways all over the place. It's a fabulous place. But I found the Tumbay bog body which was, it was, a, it was a chance. I mean we were out looking for archaeology but it was a chance find in that I saw a little bit of dried out wood on the field surface and I went over to investigate it and there was something, there was some crumbs of uh, white material on the ground and uh, I thought oh god maybe it's bog butter. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'll admit this, I, I gave what I thought was a piece of, like just something that looked a bit strange, I gave it a kick and I thought it was a bit of leather. 
that actually turned out to be part of the skin of a leg, a pair of legs, <laughs> which is kind of grim, really, you know. But it was a it was a pair of legs, um, and the rest of the body was unfortunately gone. But we in the subsequent excavation and kind of we went through the the ridge and the dry peat in the area, we did find a rib and a vertebrae. So there had been a more intact uh, body there originally, but at the time it was discovery, it was just a pair of legs. And there was some stakes in the ground beside them, which uh, suggested that the body had been staked down. But it's a medieval bog body, it's not. People tend to think of bog bodies as these prehistoric ritual sacrifice type thing. This is a medieval body. So something a little different there maybe. That's, yeah, uh, and it's those kind of details, I suppose, that the preservation in the wetland gives you these insights that, you know, in, in that case, the idea that somebody would be staked down in the bog is it's very chilling. And of course, you know, Ulkrohan Man, I suppose, um, I, again, which was a partial bog buddy, but it gives so much information about a horrible, you know, a horrible experience, a horrible death that they suffered. Um, and looking at them, are there kind of, you know, and looking at bog bodies kind of generally, are there, is it always the case, do you find, are there always those kind of suggestions of, you know, untimely deaths, should we say? Is there any, is there ever a case where you can kind of look at it and say, well, that person probably just fell into a, a bog hole, you know? Uh, that might be a great question, but, you know, is there always that kind of, um, from the ones you've, you know, the ones you know about, are they generally occurring on things like boundaries with that sort of evidence applied? Uh, I think, I think we tend to get dragged towards the, as Kathy says, the later prehistoric ones because mm. of these associations with. You mentioned boundaries early. You know, one of the the themes within the the National Museum exhibition, Kingship and Sacrifice, suggests that that these later prehistoric bodies are being deposited on, you know, boundaries at that time. Um, but actually, we know from the bog body record, not just in Ireland, more, more, more broadly, that everything, almost every kind of way you might end up in a bog seems to be represented as certainly accidental deaths in there, people losing their way, um, as well as potentially murders or potentially sacrifice, if you want to call it that. Um, and also other, other kind of practices such as uh, burials of people maybe away from, from consecrated ground or away from the usual burial places, and that could be associated with ideas of of, uh, of, of trying to prevent spirits coming back to haunt the living. So there's all these themes within there. So we tend to get pulled towards that later prehistoric thing, but we, we know that, that that's just one of the themes amongst, you know, amongst many that we see. Um, albeit is one that, one that can, tends to capture the imagination. Absolutely. It certainly does. I mean, again, and it's the preservation that, you know, it, it, that really kind of leads the imagination to start going down some of these paths, I think. Uh, you know, with everything we've talked about, I suppose, how, what was it about uh, wetland archaeology, apart from the amazing preservation, the bog bodies and all the ritual <laughs> stuff going on, that attracted you to studying it? You know, it's like, how, <laughs> how did you first become attracted to billionaire Paul Daniels? Wasn't that Kathy, right, go to you first with that. Uh, do you know, my my first ever work as an archaeologist was with the Irish Archaeological Wetland Unit, who were a field survey unit in UCD, and it was my first ever job as a volunteer with them. And, and it was the preservation. It was that, oh, my God, look at this archaeology. It's just there. It's so vibrant. It's so um, visceral, if that's the right way. You know, just there is these fresh tool marks on wood. It's so perfectly preserved. And in fairness, that was the summer of 96. And we, we surveyed some, we were in the Lamanahan area actually, and we were looking at incredible archeology. span And from that project, I went on to the first phase of the Lachine archeological project in Tipperary, where it was the first big excavation in advance of the Menorco uh, mine there. And again, it was just, the, the archeology span was just so incredible. I was completely sold on it after that, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that was it, you know. Hard to go back to ephemeral little pits and post holes and, and things like that after after you see that kind of thing. And, and how about yourself, Ben? Well, Lachine is um, what you might describe, the Lachine project is what you might describe as a bit of a gateway drug to um, <laughs> peatland archaeology. I mean, my, my background came through Lachine, but previous to that, I'd done a PhD um, in environmental archaeology back in the UK, which obviously deals with, with, with peatland environments, but, but I wasn't particularly working on the archaeological side of that, more the environmental records. But my PhD supervisors, the, the legendary Dan Charman, who was a very big figure in 
in peatland ecology and paleoecology more generally. And, and I was just very lucky when I finished my PhD, um, my external examiner was Chris Castledine, who obviously worked with Barry Raftery at Corley. And I was just very lucky that he had um, a position going when I was being private and it was working on the Lachine project. Um, so that was kind of my gateway as well. So a lot of people in peatland and environmental archaeology came through Lachine, the Lachine project. So I came out to Lachine, I came out to Ireland and worked out there in the bog. And that was kind of, yeah, me sold as well, really. You know, kind of once, like you say, once you've seen some of these sites and, and, and you know, the associated landscapes and the potential for putting together the environmental and archaeological record, which I think is, is a defining feature of peatland archaeology, we have the archaeology and environment, we put it together, the kind of interpretive power is just remarkable. So that was kind of my, you know, that was my kind of entry to it as well. Yeah, no, I can totally see that because I suppose I was, you know, typical of a lot of commercial archaeologists working during the boom. You kind of, you're just working on the sites that you get in a sense that, you know, along the road path. And um, Kathy, you and I were lucky enough to work on a, a preserved early medieval mill at Kilbegley. And the, the preservation conditions, and it was under such a thin skin of peat as well, which was the, the weird thing. There was only a few centimetres. It wasn't like metres deep. Um, but the preservation conditions, you could see the axe marks. The moss that was padding underneath the water flume was almost still green in the middle. And you know it dates from, I think it was between 650 and 850. The dates, it, you know, it's kind of astonishing. I was always kind of thinking about wetland archaeology after that experience, you know. I'd done a few smaller bits of wetland stuff, but that was a real game changer, really. It's incredible stuff. Um, I suppose, you know, moving on from the importance of wetland archaeology and the amount of information that it can give, there's the other side of it as well about how we often, you know, and I touch on it there in terms of the commercial archaeology, how we often encounter this archaeology. And it's normally through a commercial process, whether it's through somebody putting a road through it or a mine, as you said, with Lachine. But when did bogs and, and wetlands begin to be used, utilised for fuel on the kind of industrial scale, should we say, that we've seen uh, in Ireland anyway, un until recently? And what sort of challenges did that pose to the archaeology? Uh, well, I mean, Borden and Mona were founded in the 1930s, and I think it was around the 1950s that they started to mill the bogs the way we're familiar with now. They initially were producing turf, they were producing solid fuel. Uh, so it was the 1950s where they really opened up and started to, to, to mill the bogs and, and drain the bogs. That's all started around uh, Tipperary, Offaly, Longford, around the Midlands. And really, initially, it didn't pose any challenges to the archaeology. The archaeology wasn't really known about, I think, it's fair to say, Ben, at, at that stage. What's interesting about that time is, though, there was that the men working in the bogs found an incredible amount of objects in their daily work because they were very hands-on. There was a lot of uh, hand excavation work of drains and stuff like that done. And there was a catalogue of finds from bogs compiled in 1984 by Andy Halpin. And there's about 1300 finds listed in that and so many of them were found say between the kind of late 1930s right up into the 60s and they were be found by uh, men working in the bogs so the archaeology was kind of coming to life but more as artifacts and structures and sites didn't really really hit. i mean there were there were a few notable exceptions uh etienne rin did some work in littleton bog i think in well maybe in the in the 1960s around then but really it didn't really come to light and the kind of scale of the 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 scale of the number of sites that are in peatlands until the discovery of the Corlay trackway in County Longford which was excavated by Professor Barry Raftery and that was the catalyst for you know um kind of a systematic the beginning of systematic work of going out into the bogs and actually looking for the sites and trying to record them and catalogue them and, and understand the the scale of the the archaeology out there it's curious because in, in some senses um if, if you go back to kind of the 20s and 30s there was there was some there's a there's a, there's a connection between um the archaeology the bogs and the i suppose the foundation and development of, of environmental archaeology paleoecology in, in ireland where there was work with uh the the museum and um kind of one of the founding fathers if you like of palynology uh Yesen, who came and worked in came to Scandinavia and came and worked in Ireland in particular there was 
there was interest about how palynology, this is pre-radiocarbon dating, how palynology might be used to provide kind of relative dates for some of these finds that Cathy's alluding to that have been discovered by the turf cutters. So there is that kind of, um, there's that kind of context. And that, that leads on to, of course, Frank Mitchell, who I'm sure people will be familiar with, you know, Frank Mitchell's kind of like important iconic work. So there's long this, this, this kind of connection, I suppose, between the environmental and environmental record and archaeological, that that's been very discontinuous, I think, over the years. And as Cathy says, it really didn't pick up again until Barry's work, again, with Chris Castledine, who mentioned earlier, University of Exeter, and other people who obviously come through at that time, very importantly, for example, um, in Aidan O'Sullivan, UCD professor now, um, and the late great Eileen Riley, of course, who was working on, on insect assemblages through Corlay. So we get these kind of entangled, I think, strands. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if Cathy wants to add anything to that, but I think that's important, an important theme for us. I mean, not just in environmental archaeology more broadly, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. That's it then. And building on um, Professor Barry Raftery's work, what, what kind of came after that? How did it develop? Um, wasn't there a, um, as you mentioned earlier, Cathy, you were with the uh, Irish Archaeology Wetland Unit. What sort of tasks did they have? Was it in response to kind of development or was it going out researching? So, the, the, so the unit totally sprang out of Barry's work in Corlay and it was a field survey unit. It was funded by the state and it was based in Uni University College Dublin, which was where Barry was uh, prof at the time. And the unit had the brief of surveying the industrial peatlands. So it was specifically the Bordnamona bogs of the Midlands to identify and record the sites that were being exposed through milling. And so the unit, I think, started in 1991 and it closed in 2005 and in that time period it discovered about three and a half thousand brand new sites completely unknown sites and about a hundred uh, artifacts so it's really uh, important has there been anything that's kind of bridged the gap from that closing or yeah, well, board, so the unit was, as I said, state funded. So then in the late 1990s, Borden and Mona appointed consultant archaeologists. So the unit were going out and just finding the sites, and recording them. So the, by and large, they weren't carrying out excavations. They did do a few targeted excavations and some really important ones. But by and large, they were just surveying and identifying sites. So on foot of that, then uh, Borden and Mona did uh, appoint consultant archaeologists and began to undertake excavations sort of as mitigation, you know, so sites, that, uh, sites or percentages of sites that were being destroyed by the peat extraction that they started to target them, uh, some of them for excavations. And uh, outside of the Port Namona, things have been in, um, I know your own work at Eda Clune, Cathy, can we just talk about, I suppose, a couple of the more significant excavations in wetlands in, in recent years? Yeah, well, I suppose Eder Clune is, is a, uh, was a big one. That was a, a TII or NRA at the time, but now a TII excavation in advance of the N4 Dromodruski bypass. And that was um, a site that I directed in 2006. That was a huge complex of prehistoric and a couple of early medieval trackways and platforms in really quite a small little narrow tract of bog in County Longford, just at the Leitrim border. An incredible site, really, really quite unusual, a huge uh, complex, as I said, of interconnected trackways and platforms that were all joining up and crisscrossing each other. It's like a spaghetti junction of, of prehistoric roads um, and really unusual, full of artifacts, artifacts buried uh, in all of them almost, uh, regular intervals, like it's a really unusual site, it's something different going on at Eder Clune, I think. It's fascinating in a way because I suppose you know, typically with dryland archaeology, you're only finding such a small sample of the types of objects that the people were using every day. The preservation conditions don't allow for things like wood generally to be preserved. But from seeing excavations like Eda Clune and, and Drum Clay as well, the Cranog uh, that you excavated, where you're seeing the amount of bowls and cups and all of this, it just gives you a completely different view, I think, of everyday life and in the past, you know. Um, I think it's remarkable. Yeah, drum clay would really, sh like, really show that up because that's a, an um, early medieval and medieval cranoke and incredible preservation there. And I think we found about the remains of about 300 wooden domestic vessels on that site. 
if you compare that to your average ringfort excavation, which would date at the same period, and the kind of number of uh, finds or domestic vessels that you might get on that. So it's like, like any sort of waterlogged site, if, if you have those kind of, if you have artifacts, there are artifacts that you'll never get anywhere else. And they do, they, they tell you so much, you know. Ben, do you want, do you want to add in there? I think I think um, yeah I mean that's a good great point. Kathy, I think very very modest. I mean Eda Clune, which is is um, due out the publications. I think due out very soon, which is very exciting. Um, again, to go back to the question about what are people doing in wetlands. I think not speaking for Kathy, but I mean from what I've seen, the answer to that is even more bizarre. Without some very strange structures and, and monuments. Um, that, that are very difficult to interpret and understand. But again, this is expanding, you know, a range of what we what we see in wetlands. And again, with the organic side of things, you say it reminds us that you know so much material culture is organic. It reminds us of what is missing, um, and it's that kind of strange tease, if you like, of wetland archaeology as we know in the past from wetland sites and you know from inference that that these kind of organic wooden materials and other organics are being used on driving sites, but we trying to bridge that gap between what we see on the wetland and the dryland is very, very difficult, um, I suppose. But uh, yeah, again and again, Woodrum Clay, which I think is, without exaggerating, I think is going to change maybe the way, the way we see aspects of, of um, medieval life in, in Ireland. So, I mean, you know, this stuff is important, as I say, beyond this, sometimes the perception of wetland archaeology or peatland archaeology is being fringe when it's, it's really not at all. I think there's as much to do with perhaps the way Peatland archaeology has has not been pushed in the past. Maybe I think I don't know, that might be slightly controversial, but I, that might be my opinion. No, it's an it's an opinion that sure as well. And I suppose you know, looking ahead, there's new challenges coming. You know, it's great in a sense that the big industrial extraction of all bogs and peatlands is coming to a close, largely, hopefully. Um, but that's being replaced now with a policy to to re-wet, as they call it, the, the box, to close up the drains, to flood them again. What sort of challenges is that going to pose to to the archaeology, Ben? Uh, yeah, that's that, again, we could probably spend the whole you know rest of the day, you know, talking about, about this. Um so as you as you observe, you know, we we're seeing an end, at least um, some form of end to what we call industrial scale peat cutting with a view to rehabilitation for environmental again we talked about carbon earlier in this this sense that you can re-wet wetlands and that will help mitigate climate change plus of course the whole kind of biodiversity argument of, of these systems and other things they do obviously uh, hydrological storage water storage all these kind of functions that we sometimes called uh, referred these days as ecosystem services but i mean i suppose the irony for the archaeology is um is that how much of the archaeology has been, has been lost to peat cutting um, so even again, we might describe this in a sense, particularly for archaeology, as a pyrrhic victory, because we know there's a lot been destroyed with really a, a kind of minimal, in many ways, level of investigation. Um, again, I could rant on about this, but I, I'll maybe pass that to Cathy as well, because um, yeah, it's, it's a very hot topic, as you say, with the with Bordermain declaring that peat cutting is, is 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 over. Yeah, it's a yeah, that's it exactly. You know, it is a, a bit of a pyrrhic victory, and so much was lost. There's no sugarcoating that. The thing about, I suppose, you know, what people mightn't realize or have kind of considered about an industrial bog is that industrial bog that's being actively milled, you can go in and survey it in, you know, April and find a hundred sites. And if that bog is milled for the summer, you can go back, and those hundred sites can be gone, but could there be another three hundred exposed by that point? Is an entire that landscape is completely artificial and it's being altered very very rapidly in a hot summer. So, all of the bogs that were in uh, Borden owner, ownership were surveyed at least once, but once is never going to be enough in those landscapes. You know, now a lot of them have been subject to reassessment survey in the last few years. There definitely has been some work done like that. But, you know, as if the bog is continuously being milled, then new excite new sites are being continuously being destroyed and new sites are continuously being exposed so a survey it doesn't end with finding the sites in a bog it's I suppose that's kind of what, what I'm trying to say there so so much was lost in the years of milling and while there was excavation carried out and that is to be you know um what's what's the word I'm looking for like th that is a positive the level of resolution on the sites was typically very low, it was usually less than 30%. So if you had a trackway that was 500 meters, 
you know, less than 30% of that was being excavated. The rest of it went into the milling machines, you know, so, so, it, you know, it, it wasn't great. No, no. And you even see, uh, it, it's hard to think about it, to be honest, but you even see, I remember there's a, there's a newspaper article uh, a few years ago, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, where, um, an elderly couple had been burning briquettes in the fire and wasn't there a beautiful ring pin in the ashes in the morning and you know it just makes you think about all oh, yeah. with that you know it's very yeah i know what what always i find so grim was that clonny gowan man was found in the workings of a peat harvester the machine was brought in to be repaired because it wasn't working and it wasn't working because it was a bog body caught in the mechanisms like that's that's really grim you know i mean it kind of sums up if i can say that you know kind of this i suppose this challenge we've always faced and the great irony is as i you know say about peatland wetland archaeology more generally is is it's almost always reactive um you know if these bogs were being cut and drained like most wetlands are being impacted we often don't know about these sites until someone puts a hole through them or they get the body gets stuck in a machine and you know almost all the, the big sites have been worked on are, are, are a result of that and I think what's interesting when I have discussions outside the archaeological community people always say well you, you, you know you must it must be a good thing peat cutting because you can discover archaeology so there's this you know mis misconception of what is archaeology which often happens that we just want to go out and dig stuff up all the time of course we don't um, but the problem with the wetlands is we have different impacts so whilst the direct impact like cutting destroys something with a peatland or a wetland if the bog is drained and it dries out, um, even if you're not cutting it, the archaeology will degrade. So we have this huge crisis, and we should add it's not just in Ireland, it's a big problem in Ireland because we have so many bogs, but going back into the 80s, the, the um, Somerset Levels UK archaeologist Richard Brunning observed that we had a crisis in peatland archaeology across Europe, and his work continues to prove that time and again. Uh, sites like the very famous site of Star Cara, for example, you probably know has been excavated over the last few years, because it can't be preserved in situ, you know, the, the Mesolithic archaeology is literally disintegrating. So this is, you know, in many ways, we, we use the crisis, we're living in a crisis, so I appreciate it's, rel it's in relative, in heritage terms, this is a crisis, and it has been, and in many ways, you know, we, it, time is running out um, for, for what remains. I, you know, I got um, the best insight I personally could see that where that really made sense to me was uh, again at, at Kilbegley were the fields either side of it it was in this tiny little hollow at the bottom uh, in, a, in a kind of marshy area at the bottom of a long field and the farmers had never really done anything with that little um, pocket so to speak it had never been kind of done but the fields either side had been completely drained and the mill was all preserved in this little untouched bit, but right at the edges where it was near the field drains, you could see the wood had almost completely degraded and disappeared, you know, and uh, it was shocking to think it was just by this pure chance um, that, that, you know, this little capsule still existed there. So it, it you can kind of imagine on the scale that we're talking about with the large scale drainage of bogs and such, the, the damage that's been done. When we're looking at this kind of uh, re bog rehabilitation, is there anything we as the archaeological community should be thinking about doing? Should we be trying to go out to survey these sites in the current conditions, maybe, before they're rehabilitated? Or is there any kind of practical steps we could do, uh, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really what needs to happen is that any bogs, depending, there's, there are various things, as I understand, being proposed for the bogs. So it's a re-wetting and, and seeding of vegetation, which potentially really problematic, but also things like wind farms and things like that. So there's all sorts of uh, potential impacts now on the archaeology that aren't milling, but they're still impacts nonetheless. And really what needs to happen is uh, you know, a comprehensive systematic survey of the bogs that are for whatever work is going to happen in them. The sites need to be identified, they need to be recorded and a, and a mitigation plan, depending on, I suppose, the, the perceived impact or the impact that's coming down the line, a mitigation plan needs to be put in place, whether it's excavation, whether there is any potential um, to preserve in situ, though, as Ben was saying, there isn't a great you know, records of that in the UK haven't proved that's very easy to do or possibly not even possible at all. But that absolutely needs to be entirely considered because th this is 
pretty much the last opportunity, Ben, I think. Would you agree for some for some of these bogs and some of these sites for the archaeology in them? You know, this is pretty much the last opportunity. It absolutely is. And, you know, it's easy to, to slip to hyperbole. And we sometimes do when we talk about heritage and climate change and all, all the other problems we, we face in you know, society. But yeah, from the, from the point of view of Peatland archaeology, you know, we, we've, we've almost run out of time. And that's why I think there's a certain sense of disquiet and, and, and amongst some of us at the moment about, uh, about the programmes of re-wetting that for whatever reason, this is not blaming anyone that's involved in these programmes as such. Archaeology always seems to slip through the gaps in the pavement here. So whilst the re-wetting is welcomed and restoration is welcomed, you know, that's, this is our last chance. And an important point that emerges from, I think, programmes of rehabilitation and, and the, pro the process of that is that these programmes don't inadvertently damage what is left. And that's something we need to consider. And at the moment, it, it's not being considered. Um, so, yeah, it is It is in many ways. Um, it's the culmination of this crisis, you know, that, that we're discussing. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, it leaves, to be honest, as you it leaves me kind of slightly lost for words sometimes because, yeah, these sites, many of them are destroyed. There's some left. We have to make sure what is left survives. Um, or alternatively, if we decide that it's important that we re-wet bogs and don't worry about the archaeology, then maybe that's a decision we take, but it has to be taken as a conscious decision to perhaps not worry about archaeology. Maybe archaeology is not that important, but that is a decision for society more broadly, I think. It has to be. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's the... Uh... What you don't want to happen really is that in five years they go, oh, did that happen? Did it have that effect? And it's already far too late to actually fix exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think the conscious aspect of it is a really uh, good point, Ben. Um, it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, in a lot of ways, like we'd all be, you know, we'd all be used to seeing stone churches and uh, castles and so on. And it's very tangible heritage. It's in people's communities which I think is the big difference, that people live around these sites, they have their own personal attachments to them. And often, as we've discussed with bogs, they're outside of the community. Now, a community might have utilised it, perhaps with turf cutting and that, but it's in a slightly different way. It's not a, it, it doesn't have the same attachment as the local church or something like that. So it's hard to keep in, uh, I think, the consciousness uh, for a lot of people in, in an understandable kind of way. And even... You know, if you're trying to say medieval castles are important, we shouldn't let them all fall down. Well, there's the likes of Trim Castle or Castle Roach or, you know, places like that that people can go and see and appreciate and love. But there's not many places like that for wetlands. There is the Carlea Centre, which is, is terrific in Longford. But are there any other kind of places beyond Carlea um, that you can think of, Cassie? It's not really, not really, not for this kind of archaeology that we're talking about. Corlay is really the, the only centre where you can where you can see a, a structure like that, an example of a, I mean, a really special site, but nonetheless, a, a, you know, a, a still fairly, I think it's fair to say, a quite a, a typical, albeit on the monumental scale, you know, prehistoric road across a bog. There are things like, you know, the, the um, Crano reconstructions in, um, in County Clare, but that's not that's something a bit different, really. Um, in terms of like kind of the peatlands that we've been talking about, there isn't in Ireland. It's it's Corlay Centre. It's the only place you can really, you know, get out and and, and see something like that. I mean, there's yeah, it's true. Corlay Centre is brilliant, but again, you have to be going there to get there. That's you know, that's one of the unfortunate things about the location of Corlay. You know, is is um is is it's not exact again as is the death. You know, with bogs. You know, it's not on the way really anywhere else, so it probably doesn't get as much traffic as it as it should. I mean, there's finds in the museum, of course, as well. Um, it's obviously the Bog Body Exhibition we've mentioned. There are other organic uh, finds in the museum. I think one problem, Kathy, that, that always strikes me, and I always I talk to students about this, is the problem with some of this organic archaeology is it looks beautiful in the ground when you've excavated these. You know, you have these two, three, four thousand year old pieces of wood. The problem is by the time they're conserved and put in a museum case, they they look less impressive. They look like old wood, which is actually what they are. So I'm thinking of the Clarenstown Mesolithic fish traps, which are beautiful artifacts, but in the museum, they just look like old sticks in the box. And sometimes when I used to go to the museum, it was open, I'd kind of just kind of watch people walk past that and kind of go, mm. so we, there's, a, there's another practical issue to displaying some of this material, I suppose. Um, but there, that said, I think there is more potential 
so much come from them, I mean, despite the limited program of work in the body board, the Mona board in particular, you know, we could really do with more displays and exhibitions around this stuff, you know. I know museums are under pressure and, you know, everyone is, but I certainly think it's not been as well publicised as it could have been for really a variety of reasons that are probably another discussion. Yeah, you know, I'm always a bit of a dreamer, right, in terms of a, a completely unrealistic optimist would be a better way to describe it. And I just think that there's, Ireland has such an opportunity that we have so much experience and skill in, in the professional, in wetland archaeology, you know, at the moment. I would love to see a, a centre of excellence in Ireland that's focused on this, that's training students to go out and, and look at some of these bogs, you know, that, that need to be examined before the, the loss when they're, they're rehabilitated. You know, I'd, I'd love to see something like that. So if the minister or anyone with money is listening, there's <laughs> a great opportunity there. <laughs> you know, I, I think no, absolutely. The, the risk of hogging, sorry, Pastor Cathy. I mean, I think this is, this is the other side of this is, is it, we have huge potential with this, you know, with a, in normal times, at least, you know, the, the, the sort of tourism potential, you know, I mean, tourists come to Ireland and the badging of heritage, as we did talk more broadly in archaeology, is so important. And, you know, that's, that's just been in many ways, I think, a missed opportunity to present that in, in more positive lights and to, 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 yeah, really communicate that part of what makes the Irish record so special. Um, so, yeah, and that should bring economic, you know, we talk about the Midland communities and the end of peat cutting and, you know, I think of those communities and think what what we, you know, in an ideal world, like you say, if you're a dreamer, the way we might be able to promote, you know, bog finds or bog archaeology through those communities. Um, I don't know, you know, so that's something I think uh, that, yeah, it's a, it's a shame that's been missed. I mean, but again, maybe we maybe we still have time to do that. I think so. And, you know, some communities you can kind of see are, are really interested in it. We, we, we talked a bit with a community up in Kilcarmock, who just be on the edge of Loch Horror, of course, you know, and and they're very proud to have that such an important Mesolithic site nearby. Now, when you actually go and see where the site is, there's not actually much to see. There is a sign, but there's not much to see. And again, so perhaps thinking about how to make some of these sites more tangible it's not going to be possible to do what was done with Carlay for all of them but surely there's there's opportunities there I think that we could take as a country and and to really lead the world on it we're not the only country of course with wetlands but there's been such a, a excellent work done by individuals and everything over the years that it'd be brilliant to kind of lead the world on it I think you know yeah, it's, it's um, a shame it's not more out there you know Absolutely. And even thinking about, you know, when people think of Ireland from outside, wetlands and bogs is part of Irish identity too. I mean, Seamus Heaney writing so beautifully about them in a number of his poems, for example, you know, they, they are inspiring places for many, many reasons. So it, they're not kind of perhaps thought of in further opportunities that, that could come, but let's hope that some of those opportunities are realised. Uh, in in the meantime, before that happens, um, are there any kind of publications or books or resources that you think people should know about, Cathy, maybe? I'll go to you first. Gosh, well, uh, I mean, we mentioned, um, well, in terms of, well, things they can go and see are Corlay and the Kingship and Sacrifice exhibition. In terms of books, there hasn't been that much recent publication on, on peatland archaeology in, in Ireland. Um, like your book on Kilbegley springs to mind as probably one of the more recent uh, publications of a big wetland site. Eder um, Clune is coming out, hopefully uh, this coming July, the Eder Clune book will be out, which will be great to see because it's long overdue and there hasn't been anything like that in a very, very long time in Ireland. Was, um, I think prior to Eder Clune for a big trackway publication, you're looking at the Lachine, public, Lachine which came out in 2005. Would I be right, Ben? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. I think that there are relatively, relatively few publications, as you observe. I mean, I suppose the classic ones are, you've mentioned already, we'd obviously throw in the Corley, you know, monograph, or Mount Dillon Bog, sorry, monograph uh, on that front. Um, the Lachine monograph, of course. Um, um, there, are, there will be other, I suppose, publications in kind of more academic outlets. In, in a more popular sense, there's, there's very little. I mean, Barry wrote that, the book, Trackways Through Time, back in 80, whenever that was, that's probably long out of print. Um, I'm, I'm just going to flag here, and it's some self-publicity. I'm have for several years been writing an introduction to peatland archaeology, which includes some significant amount of Irish material. I'm hoping to finish that this this year. So just a bit of a 
just a bit of a plug there, people. Um, hopefully that will be maybe out later this year. When the intention of that is to kind of really open up, hopefully to a broader audience, some of the potential of what we've talked about today and, and you know, all the issues we've touched on from, from peatlands, formation, archaeology, environment, plus some of the contemporary concerns and issues around bogs and management. So that's just my plug. I apologise. That's <laughs> a very welcome one. I can't wait for it. I think it's going to be fantastic. Can I just add something in there, Neil? Um, just Ellen O'Carroll published a lovely little book called Le Monaghan, The Story of an Irish Bog. And it was about excavations that she did. Now, again, it's, it's probably one that's hard to get now, but it was a very nice and a very accessible small publication about her excavations and they found a crozier alongside the trackway and the early church was nearby and it was it's a really nice book now what's also available online is the peatland review that ben and i were co-authors with uh, nora birmingham and robert vandenort which was a review of archaeology and mitigation in borden and mona bogs it was a review of uh, two decades we published that in 2013 i think then and that's available online as well now that's a that's a data report that's a that's a report, you know, it's a, it's a very data and heavy. It's not a, an archaeology publication, but it does uh, highlight the kind of issues um, and, the, and the, the scale of the archaeological um, resource in Bogs. Yeah, and again, I'll put, I'll put a link to that. It sounds like a really important one. And, you know, I, I know Heritage 2030 is due out, I think, this year, you know, the, the National Monument Service and, and the department. We're, we're getting submissions on how Ireland is going to manage its heritage resource up to 2030. I think that's due out this year. I'm really hoping that we'll see some more in there about a different approach to wetlands, you know. Um, I suppose we'll wait to see. <laughs> but I, don't I, believe, I believe, sorry if I just cut, cut in there, I believe the, the, Green, the Irish Green Party uh, as part of their submission to that have included reference to what we're talking about to the, uh, to the, to the heritage value and the archaeological value of peatlands. So um, that's yeah, let's see. This. Let's hope there's more discussion of that. Well, you know, whilst the time is to discuss this now, as we've seen already, we don't have a lot of time, really. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's so important. And listen, I, I want to thank you both for your time. You know, I know like I could easily do another 10 episodes on this, you know, and, and especially looking at the individual sites uh, and what they can tell us. So I'll probably be pestering you again in the coming weeks. Who knows? But thanks. Thank, you for, thank you for having us. It's been great to talk about. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was really enjoyable. So that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology. And I really want to thank Ben and Cathy for all of the time and insights. I always feel a bit of a pang when I discuss wetland archaeology. I know that there's so much more to be done. And I really hope that this time we take the opportunity as a nation. As always, you'll find links and show notes on the website page on abataheritage.ie. If you have the time, I would love it if you'd consider reviewing and sharing this podcast with a friend. It really does help us to get found. And I don't know if you know, but we actually have a sister podcast as well through all our work with Abata Heritage. So if you want to hear lots of different tours for lots and lots of places around Ireland and lots of free audiobooks on Irish archaeology, just search for Discover the Stories of Ireland on your podcast player or search about a heritage and we should appear and please do subscribe to us there as well um, there's hours and hours of things to listen to thanks again for joining me and i'm looking forward to talking to you again soon bye bye